Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I hope you enjoyed the blooper episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together. That was a hoot. <laughs> and now we enter that time where we're usually supposed to feel like getting down to business. You know, the holidays are over, so enough of that nonsense and get back to work. But to me, it's still winter. The weather sucks. Sometimes we get snow, but usually it's just rain, 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 some rain, and a bit more rain. It's gloomy. And even though the days are supposedly getting longer, it's so bloody dark with clouds that it just feels like the darkness and the rain will never end. I think we need another holiday at the end of January, something to look forward to, some sort of celebration that lifts the spirits. But in the absence of that, in the name of getting down to business, I submitted two short stories to publications on January 1st. And... One of them was rejected on January 3rd. <laughs> ah, I love that, actually, because it's like, great, now I know they can't use it. Let's find somewhere else to send it. So in a way, that quick turnaround helps with the whole down-to-business thing. The other thing I did was I finally set up my office. I keep my closet as my recording room, but I set up my son's old room as my office, and I've been working in there for nearly a year, but it was still kind of junky, you know, like boxes and stuff from the basement that migrated up here when we were renovating down there, and then they never made it back down there. So I've been going through and turfing stuff and organizing, and we put up my jazz festival poster right in front of my desk. It's from a bus shelter, so it's enormous, kind of needs a certain sort of place to put it. Then we put up my little shelf, so I finally had a place to put up my Lord of the Rings figures. Yay! They've been languishing in a box since 2014, so I'm sure they're thrilled to see the light of day again. And I finally, finally, finally got my speaker system connected. Some decent sound quality in there now. I have an interesting chapter for you today. Troubles come in many forms, and... Nasty people are good at finding all sorts of ways to be nasty. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 13 The Only Plan That Matters My slippered feet pad softly along the brightly lit corridor. Those stone walls are familiar. This isn't the first time I've come here. I know the way. The swish of my shift against my legs is all I hear. The little box in my hand is the gift for the lady to be presented to her right away. Her door is this one. I knock. Her clear voice answers and I enter. She sits in her armchair by the fire, reading. For you, my lady, I say. It just arrived. I hold out the box. From whom, she replies, receiving it from me. From his lordship, my lady. She opens the small leather case and traces the length of the necklace with her slender finger. It's beautiful. She turns to me. Do you know what this is, Misha? No, my lady. She draws the snake out of its resting place. The serpent is a symbol of undying love, she tells me. 
With the finger she gently brushes the snake's jewel fangs where they clench its own tail and clasps the necklace behind her neck. Do you like it? she asks. Yes, milady, I assure her. Is there anything else you need, milady? Thank you, Misha. No, you may go. I curtsy. As I reach for the door handle, I hear her say, Dear Kian, I am successful. Kier woke and could see no stars between the trees. She'd had a dream, but its vague memory drifted off as she recognized that the sky had become overcast. The dream had left an unpleasant feeling in her chest, so she rolled over and curled up, drawing the blanket around again. In the morning, they retraced their steps down the switchback path to their intended route. Kier's dream was forgotten and she attributed the lingering unpleasant feeling to the troubles of yesterday. Nobody said a word about those events, for which Kier was grateful, though she occasionally caught Derry looking morosely at her side long. She scowled at him a couple of times, and he looked away. They continued higher into the mountains on their westward journey, alert for the possible return of Frederick and his party. Kier thought perhaps it wasn't necessary. If Frederick's only task was to speak to her, he had completed it. But caution is the first stage of preparation, so Brendau said, so she remained watchful. The path they travelled was too narrow to be called a road. Growth of underbrush indicated it had not been travelled in many months. Grasses, clover, and buttercups had taken over, and the bushes to each side had encroached so that it was barely wide enough for two horses to travel abreast. An hour or so after the midday meal, made more palatable than usual by the discovery of a treasure trove of wild strawberries, they seemed to have reached the crest of the mountain. The horses, in reaction to the level ground after the slow and steady incline, got a second wind and seemed to want to pick up the pace. Out of consideration to Jeskelin, whose second wind had not caught up with him yet, they held the animals to a restrained walk. Janik was the first to complain of stomach pains. "'Gotta stop,' he said, and did so, suddenly, to the surprise and annoyance of Layout, who was directly behind the dwarf's pony and reared up in alarm. Janik was doubled over in the saddle. Derry leaned down to him from atop Donegill, a worry line across his brow. "'What kind of pain, Janik? Sharp? A dull ache? Throbbing?' He got no answer. The dwarf slid off his mount and disappeared into the bushes." Kier looked over at Fennel, whose eyes were fixed on Layout's mane. After about ten minutes, Janik returned, a bit pale under his whiskers. His face and hands were scratched from the bushes. "'All right?' Derry asked. Janik grunted. "'The runs!' he growled. "'Better now!' All appeared well for about a half-hour, when Kier, going through all the elvish words for various berries, got stuck on Huckleberry and turned to Fennel to ask him. His eyebrows were furrowed, as if in concentration, and even as she looked at him, his face turned a greenish hue. She called a halt and hastened to help him off his horse. The elf crumpled to the underbrush and threw up. Janik took the opportunity to enter the woods again. "'The runs aren't gone yet, I guess.' Kier massaged the back of Fennel's neck, looking up at Derry in alarm. "'Is there a point in going on today?' She simultaneously took stock of her own digestive system, lest whatever ailed her friends was attacking her, too, not so far. Derry shook his head. 
It was not an ideal location to camp, but it was all they had. They would simply have to trust that nobody else was likely to come along that day. The woods provided some shelter. They separated the horses, putting Trigg and Donegill at the south end of their designated camp, and lay out on the ponies at the north, opening a long, narrow space big enough for bedrolls and a fire. Janix and Fennel's illnesses could take hours, even days, to pass through their systems. With Brendau's sword, Kier hacked down some of the bushes to make more room, then laid out Fennel's bedroll and assisted him to lie down, where he promptly rolled onto his side and curled into a groaning, quaking ball. The rank odor of illness made a putrid combination with his poor hygiene. While Jaskelin saw to the horses, Derry rooted through his saddlebag for his kit and other supplies, Skimnoddle gathered stones to surround a fire pit and toddled off into the woods to collect kindling. "'How far to the stream, do you think?' Kier asked. "'Too far,' answered Derry. "'We'll just have to use what we—oh.' Jaskelin had sunk to his knees next to Trigg and crawled to the side of the path to throw up. "'How thoughtful of him not to puke right where someone might need to walk.' Kier brushed the hair off her forehead, resigned to the new agenda for the day. "'What do you think it is? Flu?' Derry opened his kit and reviewed its contents. "'Could be. Could be food poisoning, too, in which case we're probably all in for it.' As if on cue, Derry's hands began to vibrate. "'How are you?' he asked her, his face going grey. He didn't wait for an answer, but rose, clutching his belly, and staggered into the woods." She let out a determined sigh and prepared the fire pit using the rocks Skimnoddle had gathered. How long does it take to get a few sticks, she thought with a sinking feeling. It had been several minutes since the halfling had disappeared into the brush. She followed his footsteps and soon found him, a heaving mass of brightly colored cloth, quivering in a ball next to a pool of his own rank vomit. Probably Derry would have been able to analyze its contents and determine the source of the illness, but he was too busy producing his own purgings somewhere on the other side of the path. In less than an hour since Janik's first eruption of symptoms, the entire party had been taken down, leaving Kier, so long as she didn't fall sick herself, to fend and care for all of them. "'Come on, Skimnoddle,' she said, sounding like any mildly sympathetic physiker and forcing her hands under his clenched armpits to half-drag him back to where his bedroll lay waiting for him. Dumping him unceremoniously onto it, she went back for the firewood. With an ample supply piled next to the fire pit, she stood for a moment at a loss of what to do. Jaskelin had found his bed, and both his and Fennel's bodies were overtaken by tremors.' "'What were you all thinking?' she reprimanded them. "'Derry's the physicer, not me. What am I supposed to do?' Gritting her teeth, she left off bemoaning her predicament and set about caring for her charges, starting with a search for the two missing ones. She smelled Janik before she saw him. "'Janik?' she called. "'Get away! Leave me be!' he hollered back weakly. His voice had all but lost its snarly edge and was now pitiful to hear." Okay, just so long as I know where you are. There's a bed ready for you. Derry wasn't far from Janik. He was given away by the burning, fetid odor that told her the captain was producing it at both ends. Kier nearly vomited herself. Again, she considered whether she felt ill or not and came up negative. Derry choked out, I'll be all right in a minute or two. 
She decided not to count on it, and went back to build a fire, though she wasn't altogether sure what she'd use it for. Damn Derry getting sick before he could tell me what to do. When she had a decent fire going, she erected Skim Noddle's fold-away grill and put a kettle on. Dampening a rag from her water skin, she made rounds to her patients, bathing faces and necks in a sorry attempt to lower their fevers. Skim Noddle's cramping prompted him to haul himself back into the woods, just as Derry staggered into the clearing and fell upon his bed. Kier went over to him. "'Derry, you have to help me. I don't have a clue what to do,' she implored apologetically. Sweat was beading up on the captain's forehead in spite of his uncontrolled shivering, and he didn't respond. She re-moistened the rag and swabbed his face, and even squeezed a few drops of the water into his mouth. She knew it wasn't necessarily a good idea to stop the body from spewing out whatever impurities had caused the sickness, but how long to let it go on before she should become concerned? Adding some fuel to the fire, she became aware of rumbling in her stomach. Alarmed, she sat back on her heels to analyze it. It rumbled again, and she relaxed. Hunger, that's all it was. At least I know how to treat that. Surrounded by moaning and the occasional disappearance of one or another of her patients into the woods, Kier nibbled at hardtack and dried meat. She couldn't bring herself to make anything more interesting while her friends suffered. Eventually, Janet crawled into the clearing and flopped on his bed. Okay, Kier, you always profess to not be an idiot. Think. As she poked at her fire, she tried to remember what her mother used to give her as a sick child— more than a few times she'd come down with some sort of flu and had lain on her bed feeling nearly as dreadful as her companions did. She remembered being ornery and protesting when Della urged her to sit up, but her mother was gently persistent and succeeded in getting Kier upright so she could sip, what was it, something hot and not actually unpleasant but for its association with feeling sick. Ah, that was it. Ginger. Well, she didn't know what to do for the runs, but she could make some ginger tea from Skimnoddle's supply of the root and spoon-feed it to her charges. Maybe if his stomach felt better, Derry would be able to give her some other advice. Looking over at him, her heart sank. He was quaking with chills. She couldn't see him being of much assistance today. Speaking of day... Kier glanced up at the deepening shadows between the trees, the stretched-out look of the diffused light... Her fingers curled around the ginger root in Skimnoddle's bag. It would be a dark night and not altogether warm, either. She slivered some of the ginger into the boiling water and moved it aside to keep it down to a simmer. She considered cool compresses to lower the fevers of her patients, but didn't want to stop their body's natural battle against the infection, or whatever it was. Damn it, Derry, you can't leave this up to me. She decided to monitor their condition and treat the fever if it peaked. Kier had come to the conclusion that if she weren't sick already, she wouldn't get it. For some reason, the illness was passing her by. Instead, she felt worry lines etched into her forehead, stiff shoulders, and a depressing feeling of inadequacy. When her brew had simmered long enough, she made her rounds, feeling foreheads, adjusting blankets, spoon-feeding some of the ginger tea down each of their throats, imploring them to keep it down. Janik took her arm in an alarmingly feeble grip. You take? Take care, he managed to whisper. I'll be all right. You just get better. She was exhausted and fearful for her friend's condition, but fought her need for sleep, 
One of them might need her help. She would be hard-pressed to defend them all should an intruder appear, but that was no excuse to give up on protecting them altogether. Yet, as the darkness of night deepened, she could not keep her eyes open, and her legs began to wilt beneath her. She made her rounds once more before settling down by the fire to get some rest. Just a short one. Wrapped in her only cloak, she was chilly, but eventually fell asleep. My slippered feet pad softly across the floor, through the doorway, and up the stairs. I walk along the brightly lit corridor, with their flower baskets and candelabra evenly spaced along them. This isn't the first time I've come here, and I know the way. The swish of my navy shift against my legs is all I hear. An open door on my right. I pass by. The little box in my hand is the gift for the lady, to be presented to her right away. Her door is this one. I knock. Her clear voice answers, and I enter. She sits in her wing-backed armchair by the fire, reading. Her dark hair gleams brown, red, gold. For you, my lady, I say. It just arrived. I hold out the box. From whom, she replies, receiving it from me. From his lordship, my lady. She opens the box and pulls out the small leather case. Opening it, she traces the length of the blue, gem-inlaid, serpent-shaped necklace with her slender finger. It's beautiful, she turns to me. Do you know what this is, Misha? No, milady. She draws the snake out of its resting place. The serpent is a symbol of undying love, she tells me. With a finger she gently brushes the snake's jewel fangs where they clench its own tail and clasps the necklace behind her neck. Do you like it? she asks. Yes, milady, I assure her. Is there anything else you need, milady? The remains of her tea things are on the table next to her chair. Thank you, Misha, no, you may go. She doesn't look at me but smiles at the space in the air in front of her, still lightly fingering the trinket. She doesn't ask me to take the tea things, so I don't. I curtsy and move toward the door. As I reach for the polished brass handle, I hear her say, Dear Kian, I am successful. I feel triumphant as I close the door. Kier woke up, feeling jittery. At once she attributed the nerves to her worry about her friends and immediately stood up, clutching her cloak around herself. They all seemed to be sleeping soundly enough. As she added sticks to the fire and it burst anew with warmth, the dream came back to her. The familiarity of it was startling, now that she had begun to think about it. She had dreamed the same dream just a few nights ago. She was in Barthelon Castle, in that way that one's dream self knows a location, and that was most definitely Alon Mare. But she didn't look sick. Now why would I dream about Alon Mare when I've only ever seen her in a portrait? Alon wasn't sick in the dream, but there was something very disturbing about that gift, that necklace. A snake, a symbol of undying love, Kier shuddered. She repeated her rounds at least once each hour that night, catching a few moments of rest in between. There was no fear of falling too soundly into sleep, her companions moaning and dragging themselves to the bushes to purge their already empty bellies and bowels was just as effective as the morning crowing of the rooster. At least they wouldn't dehydrate if she could keep a few sips of tea down them. 
All the next day, Kier tended to her friends, cleaning the dried vomit off their faces, bathing foreheads and the backs of necks. She persisted with the tea, which seemed to settle their stomachs a little. They drifted in and out of sleep and dreams, sometimes begging a sip of water or another blanket. Wiping Derry's face brought him around for a moment, and he opened his bleary eyes. "'You're all right?' he whispered hoarsely. She nodded. "'Blueberry decoction!' His eyes burned with earnestness or fever. Huh? Blueberries, no seeds, simmer twenty minutes. His eyes closed again. Okay, she thought. I'll see if I can figure that out. They'd passed through a blueberry field only days ago and had gathered some. Derry must have been puzzling through this in his fever-beleaguered mind. She emptied a water skin into a saucepan to start the blueberry... What was it called again? Decoction. Only about half a cup of water squeezed out, and the skin was empty. Shit, it was the last drop of water. A trek to find a stream was inevitable, loath though she was to leave her friends unattended. Derry, she said into his ear, hoping he'd hear her through his stupor. I'm going to look for water. Be back soon. After assuring herself that each man was as comfortable as possible, she saddled Trig, put every last water vessel into her saddlebags, and set out. Her cloak was her only shield against the cool spring air. She'd put her bedroll over top of fennel, and Skimnoddle was curled up under her blanket as well as his own. She rode west because they'd come from the east, and no water lay in that direction. She urged Trig along, keeping a watchful eye on the sun. She would allow herself an hour to ride away and an hour to return. Water or not, she could not leave her friends alone into the night. Kier tuned her eyes and ears to detect sight or sound of water. Once or twice Kier thought she caught a glimpse of something dark next to the path, but whenever she slowed to look closer, it was nothing but a bush behind a tree. Being alone was making her jumpy. The shadows lengthened and the sun's light only barely reached woman and horse on the mountain path. There's nothing, she thought in despair. I have to go back. She'd have to try again in the morning, but giving up was so hard for Kier. Just one bend more. She slowed Trig as they rounded one last bend in the path. Kier was looking for water. She did not expect what she saw. She shrieked in alarm. Trig reared up with a whinny. The tall man in black stood in the center of the path. Heart thudding, Kier rested her mount back under control. Blood and death, Kier yelled. What the hell are you doing here? And what do you mean by standing there? You bastard, you did that on purpose. You knew I was coming and stood there like a goddamned... Shit, I don't know what. Kier dropped her head onto Trigg's neck and exhaled completely, calming both herself and the animal. The guardian laughed softly, which infuriated her. She dismounted, and her still-trembling fingers fumbled in her pocket for the white stone he had given her. "'It's this, isn't it?' she demanded. "'This is how you find me, isn't it?' At his nod, she grasped the stone threateningly in her right hand. "'If you ever sneak up on me like that again, I will fling this thing as far from me as I can get it. You understand me?' He bowed apologetically. I did check to see that it was safe for me to come to you, you know, he said in that smooth voice that was all too reminiscent of Kami's. How did you find me before you gave me the stone? Simple trial and error. I had a vague idea of your direction and gated to places I had been. She leaned in and stroked Trigg's neck. It calmed her jitters. That sounds like a lot of jumping about. 
He gave a small bow. Once I can see another destination in the distance, I am able to open the gate to it. I assure you it was worth the effort. The stone does save time. He smiled as if thanking her for granting him the privilege. Kier looked at the stone again and sighed. Fine. She excused his carelessness on account of his fear for her safety. She tucked it back in her pocket. I confess to a certain amount of concern to find you alone on this darkening path. Why were you looking for me? I am not merely looking for you, but looking out for you, if you grasp the distinction. She shrugged, a bit embarrassed that someone would care for her like her mother. Are you in some kind of trouble? Is there anything I can help you with? All at once, Kier was overcome by a desire to tell him everything that had happened in the past few days, her abduction by Frederick, his words to her, her dream about Alon Mare. But it was getting so dark now. It's Derry and the others. They're all sick. I need to find water. But I have to go back now. I've been away from them for too long. She endeavored to keep the high-pitched, frantic tone from her voice. The guardian took a single step, and he was close to her. She could feel his warmth and smell his strange scent of mild lavender, jasmine, and bay. She breathed in slowly as she watched him raise his hand. Warmth radiated from his palm, warmer than mere body heat. Her eyes closed, waiting to feel his soft fingertips touch her cheek, but they didn't. Opening her eyes again, Kier saw his hand there, poised but hesitating. With an odd disappointment, she looked into his dark eyes, and the compassion that glowed there almost melted her. She found she was holding her breath. With a small shudder, she realized she'd felt something similar before. Kami. But in the Guardian's company, the memory of Kami faded like the dream of Alon Mare. The Guardian was fascinating as fire, but without the glimmer of danger. With the Guardian, she felt the fire's heat. She felt, well... Safe. My dear. She felt a smile overtake her tense facial muscles. You have endured much these last few days. I can see it. I can feel it pouring out of your very skin. Let me help you. Give me your water bottles and go. I will come to you once I have filled them. Return to your companions. Care for them and yourself. Kier gave in immediately. It was the best plan she'd heard all day. She gave him every container she had brought and headed back on the trail. Once he'd been out of sight for ten minutes, it occurred to her to wonder if she could trust him. Nothing much had changed in the little sick camp. Her friends all slept, much more easily than they had in the past two days. Kier had to fumble about in the dark to start a fire, but managed it without too much trouble and checked each of her charges in its light. She sat down to eat something and to wait for the guardian to show up with her water. She hardly had time to worry if he would come when he appeared. She received all the water containers from him and filled the tea kettle, refusing his help and insisting that he stay back in the shadows lest one of her companions awoke. While the water heated, she approached him where he sat next to Trigg. "'Thank you,' she said. "'Easier for me than it is for you?' "'I suppose so. "'Sit, my dear, and chat with me.' Kier observed the pale face, faintly glowing in the meagre firelight. It looked open and welcoming, honest even, but it had an austerity, an agelessness that she couldn't relate to, and she thought again of Kami. Cautious of both the guardian and her own suspicion, she crouched down and came to a sitting position, facing him. 
What should I say? Now, he said gently, how is it that you manage to stay well with all your friends becoming so ill? Kier was startled. She had wondered about that, but had been too busy to dwell on it. I don't know. Don't you have an answer for that one? He merely shrugged. My suggestion is that you accept it. It is not necessary to question everything. I don't question everything, just the things that don't make sense. For instance, why do you keep popping up out of nowhere? That is definitely something not to question. So I'm supposed to think it's normal? Her desperation came out in a squeak and she lowered her voice. If that's normal, then so is everything else. The fog and the voices and the fact that people... She stopped herself. For some reason, she didn't quite feel ready to talk to him about Frederick's words. Oh, never mind. He smiled gently in the shadows and brushed her hair with his hand. Don't forget, I'm here to help you. His words held a peculiar fondness that implied a long-standing relationship with her. It was almost patronizing, but not enough to protest. What does he want? It seemed lately that everyone wanted something, even in the name of helping. Kami said there was a price for everything. Derry, who truly believed in his code of ethics, still wanted something. His dedication to helping Alon Mare was without question, but in the end he wanted his knighthood. Kia herself wanted something, less conventional perhaps, certainly less tangible, but she too would get her reward if they saved Alon's life, a mentor, a role model, maybe a friend? And if everyone desired some sort of personal gain, did it work both ways? Did it also mean that everyone could be bought if the right price were met? Where did loyalty and integrity fit into a theory like that? What would it take for Kier to give up the mission? Her blood chilled. I nearly did it already. An icy hand clutched her heart. I already ran away. If the price had been a bit more tempting, would she have stayed away? Indeed, if she'd had her horse and supplies. A wave of guilt flowed down her body. One of her companions shifted on his bedroll. "'What do you get?' she asked. "'I beg your pardon. "'This help you're giving me, what do you get in return?' He looked puzzled, if not slightly hurt. "'I mean, why now?' she pressed. "'I needed help a couple of months ago and you didn't turn up. "'Why am I suddenly in such need of your assistance if I wasn't then?' The guardian took a moment to think. "'Let us say that others needed my assistance more than you at that time.' Now you need it more than anyone else. Oh? Kier was sceptical. The fact that you are unaware of the danger makes it no less prevalent. All manner of forces are at work here. But as for what I get, there is no fixed return on my efforts. If you choose to recompense me, then that is your decision. You will never hear me say that I expect something from you in return for my aid. He leaned forward, placing his hand on her knee. He left it there for several heartbeats before drawing it away again. The contact, then the release, sent a shiver through Kier. Whatever the reason, he was here, and he had helped her by warning her about the explosion in the square and again about the goblins. He had brought water for her sick companions, and he asked nothing in return. He had told her he knew all about her. Was he the source of information she'd been searching for? Unlike Kami, whose offer of knowledge was entrammeled in obligation, she could ask the guardian anything. She could ask him about Frederick's words, who Frederick was working for, or better yet, What do you know about me? She felt his body straighten. Right to the point, as always. 
Well, she insisted, you say you know all about me. Tell me. It's not that easy. Thanks for coming. Bye. She started away, but he held her. Dark forces are at work. His tone brought her back to her sitting position. If the people you trust haven't told you more, it's because now is not the time. Kier rolled her eyes and scoffed. I need you to trust me. He put a hand on her arm. She pulled her knees up and her head dropped into her arms. A deep sigh eased her frustration. Now wasn't a good time anyway. Any new thing he told her would probably prompt her to leave again, and she didn't want to do that. There was, however, something her guardian might be able to help her with. All right, but let me tell you about a strange thing, she began, her voice barely above a whisper in the darkness. A dream I had last night. And I realized then I had dreamt it a few nights ago as well, though I didn't pay attention to it at the time. Oh? I was a chambermaid for Alon Mare. I knew the castle. I knew the corridor. I took something to her, a box. I told her it was a gift from Kian, but I was lying. It was a necklace in the shape of a jeweled snake. She told me the serpent is a symbol of undying love. And when she put it on, I was overwhelmed by... The only thing I could think of to describe it is glee, but sort of malicious glee. What can you make of that? The guardian shifted, crossing his ankles at the end of his long legs. Very interesting indeed. And it was very vivid then. Yes, I swear I could give you the directions to her chamber, and yet I've never set foot anywhere near Bartholon Castle. Do you know if Alon has a necklace like that? I do not know, but I will learn it if you want me to. Well, if it isn't too much trouble, I can't help but think it has something to do with her illness. Then I will do it. And now your water is boiling. The guardian rose and extended his hand to help her up. She surprised herself by accepting it. His hand felt cool and soft in her rough one. It pulled her to standing and she found herself quite close to him again. Again, a thrill of excitement played up her spine, but this time she couldn't bring herself to look up into his ink-black eyes. They were too deep, too cavernous, too full of history and knowledge. Thank you, she said, for helping me. His fingers touched her chin with a feather-light brush, and she tipped her head up in response. Her eyes remained averted. Kier, he whispered, and melted away into the blackness of the forest. Kier let the blueberry decoction simmer, and as she made her rounds, she could still feel the butterfly touch of his fingertips. The firelight danced with contrary delightedness, filling Hunter with irritation. When Golgothar appeared this time, Hunter didn't jump nearly as violently, in spite of the darkness of the night. The thin, lofty man was grinning broadly. Hunter held his reaction in check. He was never sure whether to fear the lieutenant's good moods. Golgothar gestured to Hunter, and the two walked a few paces away from the others. "'It is as I thought,' the lieutenant said. "'I have spoken with my lord. His plans have changed, and things are now in your favour. He no longer requires the Lady Alon Mare's death.' Hunter slumped visibly. "'Am I permitted to be relieved by that?' Golgothar laughed heartily and thumped him on the back. "'Of course, in so much as the lady is not our enemy. "'I do caution you, however, that I and the Lord Dregor still require your loyalty. "'But with that in mind, dear fellow, you may celebrate as you like.' 
At the reminder of his forced commitment to Dregor, Hunter stiffened, his disparate emotions still dissatisfied. Golgothar changed his tone. But you have other reason to celebrate, my friend. Friend, Hunter thought. I have certain information for you that, if you use it as I advise, will ensure both your other goals are met, finding peace with Kian Barthelin, and bringing about the disgrace of one Kier Halladin. Hunter leaned forward, eagerness flitting across his features. Suddenly Golgothar had become a highly appealing figure. "'Now sit down and listen, dear Hunter. I have a story to tell you. What would you say if I told you how Kier Halladin possessed the capability of killing the Lady Alon Mare? Hunter stood before his company with renewed confidence and purpose. He felt like a new man, now that his commitment to Golgothar was no longer at odds with the loyalty that was ingrained into his soul.' The plan developing in his mind had generated energy and drive that he had not known for weeks, and at the end he would have achieved his two goals, forgiveness and the chance for a new beginning with his lord, and the downfall of Kier Halladin. No longer did he desire her death. Let her suffer at my doing as I have done at hers. Her brief career as that dark elf's treasure was over. People! Hunter spoke with such exuberance he had all their attention immediately. Even Misty and Juggler stopped their whisperings and were all ears. "'I want to thank you all for your commitment to this mission. Lieutenant Golgothar has informed me of a change of plan, and as a result we will adjust our strategies. New knowledge has come to my attention, the result of which is a natural conclusion as to the identity of the one who is even now trying to kill Lady Alon Mare.' Murmurs circulated around the clearing. Misty and Juggler looked at each other with dead eyes. Misty took off the opal ring that transmitted her communication to the lieutenant and shoved it back in her pouch. The rest of the company was asleep except for Juggler, with whom she always shared watch. She pulled an object out of her saddlebag. It was oblong, flat, about the length of her forearm, and wrapped in black cloth. She unwrapped it and caressed the gold etchings on the back, the pearls inlaid in the handle, and the initials A.M.B. engraved in stylized lettering. Turning it over, she admired her thin, precise mouth and high cheekbones. She tipped her head back, tilting it from side to side, toying with the way the firelight shone on her skin's iridescence, like amethyst. She reached for a brush and ran it through her black curls. When Golgothar finally responded to her call and appeared on the edge of the camp, she carefully finished her task before rewrapping the hand mirror and replacing it in her saddlebag. "'What's that you have there?' Golgothar asked. "'A souvenir,' she said, as if it were none of his affair. "'I see. Now then, you called.' She turned and stood before the tall man with feet apart defiantly. "'What are you playing at?' she demanded politely. Juggler stood behind and off to the side, whetting his blade, glancing up from time to time. Golgothar folded his arms on his chest. "'I wondered what you might think of that little announcement,' he said with a crooked smile. "'We could not believe our ears, could we, Juggles?' Juggler looked up and shook his head at Golgothar. "'We are of a mind to ignore the new plan,' Misty said. Golgothar looked at her dryly. I would advise you to rethink that. On what grounds? Patience, my dear Misty, patience. All will come out right in the end. 
We don't like the way this is going, do we, Juggles? Juggler looked up and shook his head at Golgothar. We don't like to leave jobs unfinished. Exactly. Golgothar adopted a stern expression and shared it with both twins. You can't have it both ways, he said in a low voice. You can't work for me and for yourselves. You began this and committed to me to finish it. He smiled at Misty's glacial face. You are not privy to the plan, nor will you be, but suffice it to say that if you don't follow my directions, you may run into problems. He vanished. Misty remained standing, staring coolly at the spot where Golgothar had been. We are privy to the only plan that matters. She turned her chin to Juggler. Aren't we, Juggles? Derry was impressed by Kier's decoction. His head still felt woozy, but he was feeling much better. When she came over to give him some broth, Derry asked, "'Were you talking to someone last night?' A stricken look flashed across her face before she adopted a confused expression. "'No?' He gave her a sidelong glance. "'Are you sure? I heard your voice in a man's.' She emitted a humorless laugh. <laughs> "'You must have been having a fever dream.' Or it might have been one of the others, she suggested. Derry allowed that it could, and he had been drifting in and out of feverish sleep, but he was confident he'd have been able to identify any of their friends' voices. Her eyes veiled challenge as she turned away. She's holding something back. Again. You know... I'm starting to get the impression that Misty and Juggler are not folks I want to hang out with. And Golgothar is, well, he's a piece of work. Well, now next week, the group will make a bit of progress, but as always, it's one step forward and two back. And we may just run into Misty and Juggler again because villains... <laughs> hey, do you remember my friends Dirk and Julia from Chats with Cool Folk number two? You may recall from that conversation that Dirk is a cartoonist and he had an exhibition of his work at an art gallery in Penticton in the fall. Well, now you have the chance to own his book. We talked in the chat about him putting out a book and he did it. It's called Keep Calm and Bury On, A Selective History of a Plague Year. And that's Barry, B-U-R-Y. You can find him on Instagram at Dirk.VanStralen. I'll spell that for you in a second. Or you can send him an email at Dirk.VanStralen at gmail.com. So Dirk is D-I-R-K. Van Stralen, V-A-N-S-T-R-A-L-E-N. All one word. Go for it. It's Here's my copy. And on the back it says, What people have said about the cartoonist. Dan Piraro from the comic Bizarro said, Van Stralen is doing some really top-notch work. Great drawings, original wordplay, and salient social and political commentary. This guy has it all. Douglas Todd from the Vancouver Sun said, Van Stralen's cartoons deal with the contradictions, shallowness, and ambiguity of today's consumer culture. <laughs> and Angry Reader from Surrey said, 
Apart from his notable lack of humor, this cartoon is about as funny as a tomb, this rubbish is insulting, blasphemous, and terribly drawn. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So that's Keep Calm and Bury On by my friend Dirk Van Stralen. On that note, I hope you also find ways to get down to business and most importantly, to keep busy and bright during the rest of the winter. This part of the season that just feels endless until the weather gets better. So take care of yourselves. Thank you, thank you to Matt and to David and Heather and to Maggie. Thank you, David and Sharon. Hey, Original Six, you all rock. And thanks to you. Remember to hit like and share and subscribe and all that. Now, go be fantastic.